0: I left you last week um, sharing with you about um, four political leaders in the 1500s, Um, and I'm going to pick up there, we've been talking about Luther, and I'm going to pick back up with one of these political rulers, but let me just read a portion of scripture. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together, Against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Um, that's an interesting statement, the kings of the earth especially when you come to four rulers like Charles V, Henry VIII, Francis I, and um, Suleiman the Magnificent. But let me take you to Charles V, who is the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire at the time. You get to 1521, Luther now has started this whole thing of a reformation. That's not what he intended to do. He He would not have stated it that way, uh, but that's what has happened, and Charles V wants to settle this stuff down and be done with this monk, this German monk, who has gone on a tirade. So he calls um, for the pope to call for a, we call it a diet, but it's really a diet. He calls a diet a gathering of bishops and church leaders at a place called Worms in Germany. And so they come. They all gather together. And if you can just get in your mind having this great (laughs) ruler who sits there, and then you have all of these learned theologians, and you've got this one single monk. I think I've got a picture. It's a famous picture of Luther at the Diet of Worms, right there. If you can imagine, you see Charles V over here, here are all these scholars of the church, uh, all of these theologians that are there, and you've got one single little monk, and they go for days. They ask Luther, they say, listen, tell us what you believe. And so he begins to share with them what he believes, what he believes about faith, what he believes about justification, which is the major issue, and somebody asked me, by the way, somebody wrote me, and I don't remember who it was, and said, why don't you explain where purgatory came from? Well, it had everything to do with the fact that the Roman church believed that justification was a process that you go through, and that when those of us who are just common people die, we have not finished out that justification, so we have to go to a place where we suffer through thousands of years um, in order to gain that justification before we can get on into heaven. Now that is a simple statement of where purgatory came from. And uh, by the way, I can take you and show you where some of that comes in from Buddhism, but I won't take the time to do that. Anyway, you've got a lot of crazy streams that are pouring into that concept of praying for the dead, and um, Buddhists do that. Um, Anyway, that's where all of that kind of pours into this concept, and it comes about really in the 1100s. Now, why did I get off on that? Why did y'all get me off on that? Uh, Anyway, it had to do with justification. That was it, because they believe justification is a process, and it's not a process. We talked about that last week. So after days of this, of listening to Luther, uh, they look at him and they say, you're a heretic and you've got to recant all of this that you believe and repent right here in front of us. And Luther says this, unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils for they've contradicted each other. My conscience is held captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Woo! Now that's a word right there, brother. Amen? That's a word right there. Well, immediately they declared him an outlaw. Now, to declare somebody in that day and time in 1521 an outlaw meant this. Anybody here, you catch him, you kill him, no no punishment for you. Uh, And so that's what happened to Luther. They declared him an outlaw, and everybody started gunning for Luther. Now, they had told Luther that they would give him safe passage to Worms. The Holy Roman Emperor had told him that. The uh, Pope had told him that. The church had told him that. You're free to come. We won't do anything to you. You come to this council and then you can go back to your home and you can do it with the security of knowing no one's going to molest you. And yet, they plot and they plan to catch Luther and kill him. However, just as God said there in Psalm 2, God's got other plans. And he had a guy who was really Luther's friend. Do you remember the elector of Saxony, Frederick? You remember? last time I shared with you that he grew up with Stoppitz. Stalpitz was the leader of the Augustinian monks there in Saxony, and he and Frederick grew up together, played together, and I have no doubt that Stalpitz sent word to Frederick and said, I'm concerned for Luther, because Stalpitz really loved Luther, and uh, Frederick loved Luther as well, and he knew what they were plotting. He's a politician. He knew what the politicians would do. And so he sends a couple of his guys down there, and I think I've got a picture. They kidnap Luther. Now, Luther has no clue as to who these people are. They just kidnap him. And they haul him off. And they take him off to this place right here, the castle at Wartburg. There it is. It's a fascinating place. Uh, um, it looks just like that to this day. And uh, Luther had a little small room. I should have gotten a picture of the little room that is there that Luther lived in for two years. Uh, It's amazing. You know, sometimes we feel like, God, why are you doing this to me? Why am I shut up in a little place? Why am I in this place of insignificance? You know, what am I doing here in this place where I can't contribute, I can't do anything? God, this just didn't turn out the way I thought it would, and yet... Luther didn't know when they kidnapped him what they were going to do is they were going to save his life. And when he gets in that little room there at Wartburg Castle, ah, he translates this. Now, this is an, from the 1800s. It's, a, it's the translation. You see here in German, Dr. Martin Luther. Now, I'll put it here, but don't you put your hands on it. And I'll let you look at it. You can come up and look at it afterwards and look at that. He translates the New Testament in that room, there in that castle, in those two years that he's shut up there. He does that. The amazing thing is this. At the exact same time he's doing that, there's a guy by the name of Gutenberg who has devised a means of printing things. Just coincidence, right? And Gutenberg begins to publish and print some of these pamphlets that Luther is writing so that they say that every plowboy all over Germany now is stopping his work and reading theology that Luther has written, those that can read. In fact, by the way, this becomes the German primer for the German language. This is what they used in school to teach German, how to read and how to write. Just like in the early days here in the United States when we were, when we were colonies and we became a new nation, they used the Bible as the primer to teach reading and writing. The very thing that is so dangerous, we dare not let it into the school today. But it produced a generation of people like Washington and Franklin and all of these guys. Well, I won't get off on that, but he's going to print Luther's Bible. And so you've got now Wycliffe has written the Bible, translated the Bible into English, Luther now into German, which in that day and time was against the law. You could not do that. Uh, You were not allowed to have a Bible. You could not have a Bible. That was uh, only for the church and for priests, and you were not to read one, and if you were caught with one, they could put you to death. Now, Luther's going to do six things. Let me give you these six things that he's going to do. Pretty amazing. Uh, Six uh, things that nobody had ever thought of before. Number one He is going to start a church that is autonomous. Now, where do we as Baptists, we're autonomous? Where do we get this concept of autonomy in a local church? It starts with Luther here. Luther starts an autonomous church. It doesn't respond to a bishop, doesn't have a bishop over it, doesn't have a pope over it. It doesn't have a council over it. It has its own authority there in that local congregation. That's who we are as Baptists. Nobody comes in here and tells us what we're going to preach or what we're going to sing or how we're going to divide up the money that the people of God give here. We decide that. We are an autonomous Baptist church who choose to cooperate with the association, with the state, and with the national convention. We choose to do that. Nobody makes us do that. Luther does that. Nobody had ever heard of that. Nobody knew. That was as radical an idea as you could possibly have. The second thing that he did was this. He abolished celibacy in the church. Amen. He said he couldn't find anywhere in Scripture where priests could not be married. The apostles had wives. Peter had a wife. Why in the world couldn't he? And he was in love with a little nun by the name of Katie von Boren. And they get married. And and listen, they have a real love relationship their entire life. They're in love their entire life. And Katie has this desire to be a matchmaker. And so you've got priests and nuns pouring out of the Roman church and she's matchmaking them up one after the other. And so he abolishes this whole thing of, um, of celibacy. You can get married. And she wanted them all to get married. Number three, he holds services in German and not in Latin. Now, can you imagine if you came in here every Sunday and everything I said was in Latin? How, you know, wouldn't that enrich your life? Wouldn't that just deepen you spiritually? So he starts speaking the natural language of the people, the common language of the people, the common tongue. That was radical. Nobody had done that before. Number four, he begins to preach. Now this is one of the things that made the dark ages so dark was that there was no preaching. You'd have to go back, really, almost to the second or third century. You had, you know, you had Theodora of Mopsuestia. You had, um, oh, Cyprian. You had um, Polycarp. You know, the Golden Throated One. You had all of those guys. After the apostles had died in the first and the second century, you get up to Augustine. Augustine would preach, but it dies out. There's no more preaching. Now, you know, I'm afraid I might say that and people start clapping, but (laughs) it it was part of what made the Dark Ages so dark is that nobody preached the Word of God. They'd get up and they'd mumble some words in Latin, and that was it. He began to preach. And as he preached, he would begin to do uh, exposition on a text. And he would begin to explain a text, what the text meant, what the text said. And so Luther's preaching is something that people had never heard. Somebody standing up in a pulpit, opening the word of God and preaching was just foreign to the church. Number five, he moved the Lord's table from behind him to in front of him. I've talked about this before. When we do the Lord's table, I don't stand between you. I don't put the Lord's table back there, and I stand here, and I'm between you and the Lord's table. We put the Lord's table here in front of the congregation because no man stands between you and the grace of Jesus Christ. No man does. And so Luther did that, helping them to understand, listen, You come to Christ for grace. You come to Christ for forgiveness. You come to Christ for justification. And so he's not the one who dispenses it like the Roman church. Look, there they are, right there. Um, So he moves the table out in front. Number six, he does something that they have never done before, and it's what you just did a few moments ago. And Luther starts this in the church they start singing. And he even writes what we sang a hymn so that the church becomes a singing church. Those six things Luther did uh, for the church, the impact that he made on the church. And some of that, if not almost all of that, I guess all of that, we do today here in the Baptist church. So if you wonder, why am I talking about Luther and why am I talking about things that happened in 1521, listen, this is your heritage. You need to understand where this stuff comes from. How did this stuff get started? Well, Luther gives us a lot of that. Now, let me go back to the political side. I mentioned Charles V briefly. Charles V of, uh, of the Holy Roman Empire now inherits Spain. So he's Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire and he's Charles I of Spain. Confused yet? And he's got this great dream in his mind that he's going to put all of these European countries together, and he's going to have this massive empire, and he's going to be emperor over it all. The only problem is this: He's at war with France. he's at war with Italy, and Suleiman has now got the Muslim Turks, and they're at the gates of Vienna. Austria is about to fall. Hungary is about to fall, and so what he's got to do is he's got to take off, raise an army, and go and fight these Turks to keep them out of Europe. And while he goes to do that, Luther is doing all this other stuff. Well, there's going to come an end to this whole war with, he, he defeats the Turks, he settles his war with Francis I there in France. And he comes back, and when he comes back, he discovers that this crazy German monk has done all this wild stuff, and that Lutheranism now has spread all over the Holy Roman Empire. Now, Charles V is going to have somebody that is going to help him a little bit. He's a king, and his name is Henry VIII, who is a staunch Catholic. Until he wants a divorce. (laughs) And that's going to change. But for the meantime, this is what Charles V is going to do. He's going to call for another diet. And he calls for a diet at Spire. And he gathers all of the church leaders there and all of these heads of state from across Europe. And he's got the backing right now of Henry VIII And uh, he's going to tell them two things. Number one, he's going to announce that ISIS has been defeated. (laughs) The second thing is he's going to say this. Lutheranism is heresy, and he is going to re-Catholicize all of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, he's got a problem. And the problem is this. He's got a bunch of these German princes like Frederick, who are already now Lutheran. They've left the Catholic Church. They are now Lutheran, and they begin to protest against the Holy Roman Emperor. And as they protest, they are called... pro. There you go. There you go. That's where it comes from, right there. In fact, they form a league, the small Caldic League. You ever heard of that? They form this league and war breaks out. So Charles V now is fighting his own German people. And the only way I really know how to explain this is to say this is the blue and the gray. You have got the Union and the Confederacy here. And they're just going at it and it is a vicious, vicious war. They begin to fight one another in these bloody battles. There's really no decisive battle that settles it, but they come to the place where they essentially say, we're, we're ty- we can't keep killing each other like this. And so they come to a peace agreement called the Augsburg Agreement, and they uh, come to this agreement, the Peace of Augsburg, And what they say is this, we'll just let every German state determine what it's going to do. Which was, you know, sounds pretty good, sounds pretty fair. And so that's what's happening in Europe. Now, while all of that is going on, let me back up and introduce you to a new guy. This is a guy that I really like, and it's a guy that uh, Dr. Timothy George introduced me to years and years and years ago when I was pastoring in North Carolina. I picked up a book that Dr. George wrote uh, that um, uh, really just hooked me into church history, really got me into the interest of church history. And the guy that he introduced me to in his book is a guy called Ulrich Zwingli. Um, fascinating fella, interesting guy, brilliant student. And he has a brilliant professor by the name of, now listen to this, let me, let me see if I can get it right, Desiderius Erasmus Rotterdamus. Now how would you like to go in the first grade and have to spell that? Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam is what it means. Uh, that's Erasmus, and Erasmus is the guy that we kind of, that everybody in history kind of look back, looks back to. He's the guy that brought together all of these Greek texts and produces a Greek New Testament. He produces a polyglot as well, which is a different translation, Greek and Latin and whatever else. He, 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 does, he does that, but he puts together this Greek text that becomes known as the Textus Receptus, uh, from which you're going to get uh, the 1611 King James Bible. Now, I'm not going to talk about all of that because if you get into textual issues, we'll be here until Jesus comes back, and then we'll, we'll still be arguing about that, I think, into heaven. Anyway, uh, that's what he does. He's a brilliant man. He puts all of this Greek text together. And remember what I shared with you about the Latin Vulgate? You remember when, I, I, when Stolpitz takes uh, Luther, you remember, uh, to the passage and he shows him what's really said in the Greek and that the Latin has not correctly translated it? Well, Erasmus' student Zwingli begins to read the Greek New Testament. And as he reads the Greek New Testament, it has a tremendous impact on him. And it should because the guy's living in sin. He's studying for the priesthood, he's preaching, but he's living with a woman and he has a child by this woman. Well, he's known as a great preacher, and people are really captivated by, what, by his preaching. Uh, and the gross Munster in Zurich needs a pastor. The great church in Zurich is uh, empty in the pulpit, and so they turn to Zwingli. And they talk to him about becoming their pastor. Now, I don't know how he explains the woman. I don't know how he explains the affair. I don't know how he explains the child. But in spite of all, he must have done a good job because they hire him. Well, they hire him, and in 1519, the plague breaks out in Zurich, the Black Death. And he stays. Like a good pastor, he stays. He doesn't flee like the aristocracy and... Um, Goes out to the, to the countryside, but he stays in the city and he ministers to his people and he gets sick himself. However, miraculously, he doesn't die. And it was during that period that I think he must have come to a saving knowledge of Christ. I think he had a real salvation experience during that experience because it changes everything about him. Now let me tell you what he begins to do. After he's better, he goes back to the Grossmunster, the great church there, and he begins to preach expositionally, verse by verse, starting with the Gospel of Matthew. Nobody had ever heard of that before. He's doing this almost simultaneously as Luther is doing it. He begins to preach verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew, and he comes out, and the second thing he does is this is that he acknowledges the authority of Scripture, sola scriptura. That Scripture has authority over us. In 1522, he refuses to observe Lent. In fact, he gets a big sausage, and there in public, he cuts it up and he eats it. And then he preaches a sermon, and the sermon is freedom of choice in eating because he says he can't find anywhere in Scripture where it says you can't eat. I'm going to preach me a series on that. <laughs> Number three, he begins to emphasize, now listen to this, salvation by grace. Number four, he emphasized, now you're not going to believe this, the priesthood of all believers. He was Baptist and didn't realize it. That's huge. Where did we come up with this stuff? comes from Scripture, but look at at Zwingli. Zwingli says this, that every believer stands before God for himself. Number five, he rejected the sacramental system, purgatory, intercession of the saints, and, and listen to this, clerical celibacy. So he gets married. He gets married. Now, the interesting thing, and where I want to take you from there, and I've got, I'm going to wrap this all up here and just kind of come to an end on this, although I'm going to talk to you about the meeting between Zwingli and Luther another night. Um, there are three men that Zwingli pastor that you need to know. Three guys that are in the congregation there that hear this guy preach out of the Word of God. Three guys that are going to become radical reformers. You see, Luther was not a radical reformer. Zwingli was not a radical reformer. Now, the three guys I'm going to tell you about are going to be some of the start of the radical reformation. Number one is Conrad Grable. Number two is Felix Montz. And number three is George Blue Rock. And they begin to do something that nobody had done before either. They begin to get together during the week and hold a Bible study. They kind of have their own life group. They have their own Sunday school. And they're reading Scripture, and they're looking at Scripture, and they're praying over Scripture, and they're talking about Scripture. And you know what they discover? they discover this, that the government doesn't have any control over the church, which sounds an awful lot like freedom of religion. And what they believed was this. They believed that when a child was born, he was not born into the church and saved because his parents were saved, But they believed that that child had to grow up, hear the gospel, and answer the question, what will I do with Jesus Christ for himself or herself, and then be baptized in what we call believer's baptism. Wow is right. Because they're going to start killing these people left and right because they believe in believers' baptism. They stopped having their babies sprinkled. They did not have their babies sprinkled. They did not have their babies baptized because they believed that that child had to grow up and understand the gospel to the place to where that child could confess his or her sin and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, do you know what happened out of that? The city council of Zurich called them before that council. Now, here they are. These are people who've already begun to believe because they read the scripture that the government doesn't have any authority over my spiritual life. That the government can't tell me what to believe. The government can't instruct me what I must believe and what I can't believe. And yet the council of Zurich calls them before them January of 1526, and they give them one week to have their babies sprinkled and baptized. One week. You know what they do? They meet secretly in a barn. I think it's Conrad Grable's barn they meet secretly in, and there they're studying Scripture And out of conviction, George Blue Rock stands up, looks at Conrad Grable, and says, I want to be immersed, as the New Testament says we are to be. Well, Conrad Grable didn't know what to do. He'd never seen anybody immersed. He'd never baptized anybody. He'd never seen anybody baptized. So they talk about it, and they figure it out. It's January, Switzerland, They have to cut a hole in the ice. I think I've got to pick, well, no, there's there's a Grable there. Now, his name is Blue Rock. They baptize him in January in Switzerland. That's a good name because that's about what he's going to be when he comes out of there. But he's baptized, and they begin to baptize each other. And that's where the name Anna, not anti, but Anna, A-N-A, Baptist, comes from. Now, there are a lot of anti-Baptists as well. But this is Anabaptists, and it means second baptism. They are the ones who come and they rebaptize each other because they do not believe in sprinkling, but they believe the New Testament. Every time you see someone baptized in the New Testament, it is by immersion. And uh, it is always someone who's old enough to understand that they're making a profession of faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, when they do that, let me tell you, everybody turns on the... If there's one thing that unites the Catholics and the Protestants, it's we're going to kill the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists, when you became an Anabaptist, you had about 18 months of life left. They killed them on the average of uh, about 18 months after they were baptized. Now, the Catholics had a penchant for burning them. The Protestants really either liked to cut their heads off or I think I've got a picture here of, that's Felix Mons. They caught um, George Blue Rock, Felix Mons, and Conrad Grable. That's Conrad Grable. They caught, no, Felix Mons. I think it's Mott's. They caught Mott's, they tied him up, and they said, you like baptism so much, we'll just dump you in the water and you can be permanently baptized. And that's what they did. Um, Conrad Grable went into prison, contracted the plague, and died. And George Blue Rock, uh, they brought him in, they tortured him, they beat him, and then they... um, excommunicated him from their area, and he left. And do you know what he did when he left? He went out. Now, this gives you the history of the Anabaptists, basically, right here. He goes out, and everywhere he goes, he shares the gospel. He shares the gospel, and he starts churches all over that area of Switzerland and up into, I think, into southern Germany, which is Bavaria, before he dies himself. But that's how they spread. Do you know who's doing missions at this time? It's not Luther. It's not Calvin. It's not Knox. It's the Anabaptists. Why do you suppose the Anabaptists become staunch missionaries? Because they had to leave and they had to flee. And as they fled, they took the gospel and they shared it. And the whole modern, well, I wouldn't say it comes from just here, but a large part of the modern mission movement came from these Anabaptists who were made to flee. And as they fled, they just shared Jesus everywhere they went. Okay. I'd love to tell you and come back around to Luther and Zwingli because that doesn't end very well but we'll do that another we'll do that another night